On this episode of the Concast, we discuss all things Reiki. Friday. My name is Connor Collins. I'm a registered massage therapist and a sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario in Canada. And welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss injuries, wellness, and all aspects of health and healing in an attempt to explain some of the things that you as a patient might experience. Or if you're a therapist, you may experience it as well trying to get a better understanding of everything. So I'm glad that you've joined me for this week's Thought Experiment, episode 26 of the Concast, where we're going to talk about something that I am not experienced in really at all, which is Reiki or energy healing. And I'm very aware that there are many subsets of Reiki and energy healing. And when I first started to search this there are some articles that are saying there are 64 types of reiki there are others that are saying three or four so instead of trying to break down all of the variable types of energy healing and reiki i've focused on really two elements of the subset of the energy healing realm and the purpose of this thought experiment is for me is to try and understand from an anatomical or a physiological perspective, why some of these therapies may work. When you look at the the meaning or the definition of Reiki, Reiki has a sort of universal meaning of life force energy, is defined as a light touch therapy or hands-off therapy, can also be done at a distance. And it's been described as having this direct effect on spiritual energy. This was discovered in the 19th century in Japan by a Buddhist monk named Yusui and then came to the uh, United States by way of Hawaii in the 1930s and then more prominently into the mainland in about the 70s and it's been practiced ever since. The claims, it is working on life force energy or energy fields and by performing some of the techniques that Reiki practitioners perform you're releasing blocks of energy within the body and these energy blocks are subsequently related to things like pain, injury, and a number of other variety of conditions ranging from anxiety to depression, etc. Now, I first want to say that I'm not making any claims about Reiki in and of itself and Reiki treating or fixing any of these conditions. When I went into PubMed to attempt to look up studies on Reiki. To be frank, I was expecting to find nothing, and I was I found thousands and thousands of studies. So this has kind of caused me to question my own knowledge of Reiki, and I'll probably dive even more into this. But from what I've read so far, the, the overall and overarching conclusion is studies aren't saying it doesn't work. There are some studies that says it does work, and there are quite a few comparable studies looking at Reiki against traditional manual therapies 
And some of these studies would say that they are comparable to other manual therapies, and the majority of these are when you're applying light touch as opposed to some sort of distance technique or non-touch technique. And I think that for that purpose, I'm not going to discuss light touch Reiki because for me, it's impossible to separate light touch Reiki from any other manual therapy. The minute that you're placing your hands on a person, a Reiki practitioner can say that I'm setting an intention to do some sort of energy work. And a manual therapist may say, well, I'm setting an intention to do X, Y, Z. And who's to say those intentions aren't the exact same without a different verbiage behind them? So I think it's virtually impossible to suggest that when you have your hands on a person, you're doing Reiki versus XYZ. One person could say they're doing Reiki by holding the arm. Another person could say they're doing an osteopathic technique. Another person could say they're doing passive range of motion. And so there is no scientific way of separating that out. Therefore, we are not going to be discussing light touch Reiki any further. We're only going to discuss the Reiki that you're not touching the patient at all or you're doing Reiki from a distance. Now, the other interesting thing in the research is there is a lot of Reiki that's being done in hospitals. And this was surprising to me. And a lot of it's being done on chronic pain patients in these settings where uh, comfort is a priority for the patient. And it's not that I'm discounting it being in the hospital setting. I'm just frankly surprised that it's in the hospital setting as much as it is. So I think the two major types of Reiki that I want to discuss are no-touch Reiki and distance Reiki. So no-touch Reiki being the therapist and the practitioner in the same room, the therapist that's applying the Reiki session is not coming in contact with the patient at all. So the hands might be one to two to three inches away from the actual limb or area of the body that the the practitioner is treating with the claims that that is changing energy fields within the body, unblocking those energy fields, and then the subsequent unblocking of those energy fields is leading to overall better health, wellness, reduction in pain, improvement in injury outcomes. The second type is distance Reiki, where the practitioner is not in the room. Sometimes they're not even in the same country or continent, and they are And the claims are that they're doing therapy on that individual from a distance. So I think the first topic that we'll discuss is the no-touch Reiki where the therapist and the practitioner are in the same room. Before we go into potential mechanisms as to why this works from a physiological or anatomical perspective, we want to discuss something that's quite well known in the field of neuropsychology, which is the concept of peripersonal space. And peripersonal space is the volume of space that's immediately adjacent to your body. So everybody's peripersonal space is a little bit different, but this is the area around my body that my body occupies that is greater than the actual size or volume of my anatomy. This relates to really three things in the neuropsychology world. Visual processing, so the ability of the eyes to relate to space. 
And if you think about things like athletics and sports, we've got our peripheral vision and we've got our ability to slow a game down or speed a game up based on our visual processing. And the thought is, is that really great athletes have really attuned visual processing and this allows them to see the game more slowly. You know, people like Sidney Crosby in hockey or Wayne Gretzky are thought to be able to slow the game down. And there's some truth to that in that that has a lot to do with their visual processing. So a person's ability to process their surrounding environment or then take away their visual processing has an ability to augment their peripersonal space. So it can make it larger or it can make it smaller. The other element or second element to peripersonal space is proprioception. And proprioception is the use of all of the receptors in our body, joint receptors most prominently, to understand our body's awareness in our space and our environment. So this can affect things like our coordination. This can affect things like our balance or our movement and spatial awareness. So things like clumsiness, again, athletics and sport, how coordinated we are. This is generally our proprioception. And then thirdly, and often less discussed, is something known as interoreception. And interoreception is our sense of the internal state of our body, which is both conscious and subconscious. So these three things, visual processing, proprioception, and interoreception, are the reasons that we are able to sense things around our body. So if you were to close your eyes right now and somebody else was to wave their hand two to three inches behind the back of your head, you would be able to sense that. And some people would say and argue, well, you would be able to hear the movement of the hand. Well, if you do that lying down on the underside of the foot two to three inches away or along the outside of the leg, you're able to sense that something's there. Even if you're not moving the hand, if you're able to place the hand two to three inches away, you're still able to sense these things in the research. And so this concept is peripersonal space, the volume of space that your body occupies that's greater than the size of your body. And that is variable amongst people. And some people have a larger peripersonal space and other people have a smaller peripersonal space. And this may be, in fact, lending truth to this concept of you're in my bubble or you're encroaching on my personal space. Because people, depending upon their stories, past histories, etc., are going to have different responses to people being in their peripersonal space because physiologically, it's directly related to their nervous system. So some people may experience anxiety because the signals that are being sent by the visual processing system, the proprioceptors and the interoreceptors are sending mixed messages into the central nervous system and then the brain is discriminating against those and processing them. So some people might not like you in their space if you're close to them. Some people might be completely fine with it. Now, this isn't just from a physiological perspective. There's also a psychological perspective, cognitive perspective. So some people just don't like people close to them based on other experiences in their life. But there is this physiological reason, potentially, for why people don't like other people close to them. 
So I think this concept of peripersonal space is a good foundation for the discussion around why are some scientific reasons why Reiki may work. And let's start with the no-touch Reiki. So I think the first is that concept of peripersonal space is having somebody close to your peripersonal space in a comfortable environment therapeutic for you. So if we look further into peripersonal space, and in particular, the concept of interoreception, interoreception is thought to aid in self-awareness. Interoreception is also known as visceroreception. We have these receptors within the body that are responsible for monitoring aspects of our respiratory system, our digestive system, our cardiovascular system. So if we look at these from a subconscious perspective, we've got interoreceptors that are in our blood vessels and they help monitor our heart rate. They also help monitor our blood pressure. Now, I don't know right now that my blood pressure is 120 over 78, for example. But inside my body, the interoreceptors know exactly what my blood pressure is and are adjusting accordingly. I also don't know that my blood sugar might be 4.8 right now, but my interoreceptors that are monitoring that continually throughout the day are well aware of what my blood sugar is. So there's these physiological processes that are going on. Now, the interoreceptors are also part of our nociceptive system. So our nociceptive system is our threat signaling system in the body so it will send information back to the brain to discriminate threat based on changes in temperature based on changes in vibration chemical signaling and there's an opportunity that this system can create pain for us depending upon how we perceive these threats some of that is related to an acute injury and some of that is related to more chronic states of injury Now also in the interoceptive system, we have a part of the skin, the soft cutaneous touch receptors are part of this interoceptive system. And they also relay back information to the nervous system. So I think the first mechanism to discuss based on the fact that we have interoceptors in the skin that are directly related to our nervous system is how close is the practitioner to the patient in non-touch Reiki? So are they within an inch? Are they within a half inch? And how long is the hair on the body in the area that they are touching? Because if you are not touching the skin, but you are coming in close enough contact with the hair, then you are influencing soft cutaneous touch receptors in the skin, which are going to send signals back to the brain. These can have positive influences on predominantly pain and comfort They could influence things indirectly like the tone of tissue, which again would carry over into things like potentially influencing joint range of motion and overall function. So one of the thought processes might be if you're close enough to influence the hair, then you're close enough to influence the skin. Therefore, you may be close enough to influence the nervous system in response to that. Influencing the interoceptive system which is part of that concept of peripersonal space and having positive influence over a person's self-awareness in peripersonal space and then having carryover into potential 
benefits of everyday life. So that's mechanism number one, influencing the interoceptive system in peripersonal space. Potential mechanism number two, and I think this is a huge one, is the concept of company. So there are two people in a therapeutic environment, and generally you're not talking in a Reiki session. So there's this concept of company. And if you think about company, company is connection without pressure. And this is one of the reasons why being in a relationship with somebody that you're not around on a regular basis can be so challenging, is that this concept of company allows you to connect with an individual on a regular basis without having any pressure to do so. And this may be the most underappreciated thing of relationships, whether they be romantic relationships, friendships, professional relationships. And we've been seeing a lot of this with COVID-19 and not being able to just be in the space or in the presence of other individuals has been having potential negative effects on people. And there are plenty of people in life that don't have the luxury of having company. And just because you're in the presence of somebody, it doesn't mean that you perceive that company as positive. So if you're in a friendship or a relationship that isn't going well, and you're having hurdles and you're not discussing it, but you're in the presence or company of that individual, then that company can be very, very awkward. It can be very unsettling, unnerving, and that can do negative things for the nervous system. It can cause you to question that relationship. It can cause you to have anxiety around it. It can cause your stress response to go up. Anytime our cognitive stress response goes up, there is an opportunity for physical stressors to come into play, especially if we already have an injury or we already have a chronic condition that we're experiencing, elevating cognitive stress we know, or mental stress, can potentially have negative carryover to this. Now, if, for example, you're in one of these negative scenarios and now you're seeking something, you're seeking a therapeutic intervention, part of that therapeutic intervention is you're seeking positive company from somebody else. You might just want to be in the presence of somebody else to get away from that unsettling situation. If you are a person that is on their own a lot and they aren't in any relationships and they spend a lot of time being by themselves, then maybe they just want to seek the company of another individual through a Reiki session. And so the this aspect of company and the seeking out of positive company, I don't think can be underestimated from a positive psychological aspect. I mean, people are looking for positive relationships and positive company all of the time. And so is it that you're in the company of somebody that you appreciate and you value their insight and therefore you're getting a reduction in overall stress response and then seeing positive carryover into certain aspects of your life as a result of that? So that's number two is don't underestimate good company. And I think we can look at that in a therapeutic setting, but just generally in life as well. Don't underestimate the positive effects of just having somebody around that you appreciate and you're not necessarily talking to them. That can go a long way for developing positive relationships. The third is the concept of down-regulating our sympathetic nervous system. So we have two channels in our nervous system, most commonly in our autonomic nervous system, and this is our automatic portion of our nervous system. We've got our sympathetic response, which is responsible for fight or flight. 
This increases our heart rate, our blood pressure, our sugar within the blood. And the example that's often given is running away from a bear in a forest. We need our nervous system to be really, really heightened to do that. And then we've got our parasympathetic nervous system, more rest and digest. So it helps decrease our heart rate, our blood pressure, our blood sugar. And with respect to pain, the parasympathetic nervous system generally reduces pain, where the sympathetic nervous system generally will increase a more painful experience for the individual. When we're in a Reiki session, especially if there's no talking, we're lying on the table, we're in a calm position, we may be instructed to breathe a certain way during the session. There may be some intentions that are set at the top of the session. And these are very meditative actions. And I would be curious to see a Reiki session studied against a meditation session and to see whether or not there were any different outcomes. Is one of the reasons why Reiki works, you're in this meditative session for 30 minutes to an hour. You're Yes, you're getting some manual therapy done, but you might also be reflecting on these intentions that you've set. You might be going through breathing and meditative practice. And we know that there are several positive benefits to meditation in influencing the nervous system, influencing pain experiences. And so is it just that you're going through this meditative session and the therapist happens to be in the room with you? Number four is the patient-therapist relationship. And this kind of goes back to the concept of company and number two. But what is the relationship between patient-therapist Does the patient or the client trust that therapist? Is there good elements of communication? Does the therapist care about the patient from a therapeutic standpoint? Has the therapist shown empathy and sympathy towards the condition that they are treating? And again, the patient-therapist relationship we know has really profound effects on patient outcomes. And this has been studied in medicine for a long time. The more that a patient trusts the therapist, the better the outcomes they have, and that's well known. So is it that the person that's seeking the session, they're already maybe interested in Reiki, or maybe they're not, but upon having that interaction with the the therapist who shows empathy and sympathy for what they're going through from an injury standpoint or a pain standpoint, that helps paired with these other elements to improve their outcomes. Number five would be the word that I don't love to use is the word placebo. People would say, well, Reiki works because it's placebo. One concept of placebo is that something works because I have the expectation that it's going to work. I have a patient that comes to see me. They've been referred from a friend who is somebody that they already trust. They come to see me. They say, Connor John referred me. He said really great things about you. I treat them. They get 100% better in one treatment for a condition that they've had problems with for two years. I could argue that I'm a really good therapist. Others would argue that it's placebo because they already had the expectation it was going to work because it worked for their friend Rob who referred John in the first place. Now there's a second concept of placebo that People would argue that placebo, in fact, doesn't necessarily exist to the degree that we think it does, 
And what we're looking at here is the complexity of the patient-therapist interaction. And what we need to understand is the verbal and nonverbal cues that go on in that relationship. So things that I've talked about like empathy and trust, company, does the patient value your opinion? And this allows you to establish a relationship between patient or client and therapist that can offer therapeutic benefits far beyond the manual therapy or the exercise that we are doing, whether we're discussing Reiki, whether we're discussing osteopathy, chiropractic, physical therapy, etc. So I think all of these mechanisms that I've just discussed for why we think Reiki might work, I think that we could discuss these for all manual therapy techniques. Because the reality of it is, is often you will get people that will push back at Reiki because it's not touching the person or there's light touch involved. It would be really interesting to see Reiki against other manual therapies. So Reiki against chiropractic, Reiki against hands-on physical therapy, Reiki against massage therapy. Because what we see for a lot of just manual therapy studies is there isn't great evidence for those either. So can we really be that critical of saying Reiki doesn't work when, in fact, a lot of what we're doing as manual therapists, there isn't great evidence for just the intervention of manual therapy alone on individuals in general. Now, I certainly don't have the answers there, but it is an interesting question to ask. So those are five of the mechanisms that I think might contribute to why Reiki may work outside of the common definitions of energy blocks and unblocking these energy blocks. So those are only really explanations for a Reiki session where a therapist and client is within the same room. Now there's a concept in Reiki known as distance Reiki where practitioners are performing Reiki from outside of the room, outside of the country, outside of the continent on individuals to improve health outcomes. Next I want to talk about some elements as to why I think this may see positive outcomes. The first is what are other things that the individual is doing at the time or times that they are getting a distance Reiki session. And I don't mean at the exact time, but in the general course of the days, weeks, or months on either side of this Reiki session. So are they using Reiki as part of an overall change in their lifestyle? Are they getting other therapies at the same time? Physical therapy, massage therapy. Are they changing their diet? Are they changing their exercise? And is it in fact one of these other things that's helped improving the outcome and the Reiki session is being given credit for being correlated to these other outcomes, but not necessarily the cause of it. I do not know. The second is the natural course of history of an injury or a pain cycle. So we know that for a lot of things, if we just don't do anything to them, they can improve on their own within a zero to three month period, which is why when we look at things like chronic injuries, we don't define those until three months or beyond. And this is in cases where there's no expected prognosis. So it's one thing to say if the person's gone through knee surgery for an ACL injury to the knee and we know that it's going to take a year to heal, we wouldn't define that person as having chronic pain because we know that there's this prolonged recovery. But if somebody comes in with knee pain where there's no surgery or necessarily structural damage or underlying disease then maybe after four or five, six months, if that pain's really bad, they may fall into 
this definition of chronic pain, where some people may define them as that, other people might define it as persistent. What we're trying to get away from is using definitions that catastrophize the situation and make it, from a psychological perspective, very difficult for the person to manage. So is it simply the natural course of the injury or the condition that the person is being treated for and the distance Reiki session falls within that time frame of the natural course of history of that particular condition. The third is the concept of empathy or sympathy. So again, going back to the psychological perspective of an injury, what is my personal relationships look like at the time of my injury? Where am I at with other stressors in my life? Am I feeling particularly lonely? And knowing that there's somebody out there that's displaying empathy and sympathy towards me, is that allowing positive change within my nervous system to ultimately decrease my pain or improve my overall quality or function? That's certainly, I think, something that we often take for granted when looking at people that are in pain or are injured. The last two are somewhat related to number one, and one being that of intention. So are there other things that are being instructed via this distance Reiki session? So to set intention, to create positive attitudes and purpose in life. So does this cause the person to, again, modify their diet, modify their stress responses during the day, take up physical activity, seek out other therapies, seek out some company and positive relationships, and all of this helps modulate the nervous system, which reduces pain and leads to overall positive benefits and outcomes. The last one being then, does it lead to this overall psychological shift in perspective? We know that, especially in the chronic pain states, when we're able to change our psychological perspective on the pain experience, we're able to move towards more positive outcomes. These might be some potential mechanisms for why a distance Reiki session may work. Are there other things going on? Is it the natural course of the the history of the injury? Or is it more related to the psychology of the patient or client? Knowing that there's some empathy or sympathy being shown towards them, they're able to set these intentions and shift things towards a more positive psychological perspective ultimately reducing their symptoms. So those are five mechanisms by which I think both the non-touch Reiki when you're in a room with a therapist-client relationship versus a distance Reiki session, why those may work from my perspective. The other reasons they may work is lastly, they might work for the reasons that people say that they work. And the reality of it is, is I don't know that, you don't know that, and we're never actually going to know that because that's impossible to actually study. But I think many people are into this concept of knowing, me being one of them, trying to really thoroughly understand why things might work. And that's just part of my brain, and this is the reason why I have this podcast to go through these thought experiments and take you along with me. Now, the reality of it is, is that there are things that we don't know, and Even as I discuss all of these elements of manual therapy and putting together a rehab program, none of us actually know, truly know what we're doing. We're just pretending that based on our teaching, our education, and how we work with patients, 
These have been getting positive results, and therefore we continue to do this based on the results that we're getting. But I can't tell you definitively that by me mobilizing the knee, this is improving conditions over time. I just can't do that. There's nothing to say distinctly that this improves that. For a lot of people, that is a shot to their ego. They would they would argue back at me, and generally I just disagree. And I'm okay with not knowing. That's part of life, and it allows you to continue to be inquisitive and investigate and question everything because I think it's in, it is important to question everything. Now, the one thing that I do want to close with is this podcast wasn't meant to be insulting towards Reiki in any way. I think that any therapeutic intervention has its place. The danger becomes, and this is not only to Reiki, this is any field, I've seen it in any field by a number of different practitioners, including medicine, is that when we make claims about things that are unsubstantiated, that's where things become dangerous. And this goes for, like I said, every technique and every intervention. So if somebody's making claims about things that are completely unsubstantiated, if they're making claims about effects on chronic diseases like cancers, and this actually causes a cure in your cancer and it's completely unsubstantiated, then that's where I have a problem in that what you're saying is not true and it can be dangerous towards that patient and it can cause them to maybe go off maybe medications that are substantiated in the research or choose to not take a medication that might help or a therapy that might help uh, that is more substantiated in the research and that's where things get dangerous and one more time reiki is not the only thing that would be guilty of this i've literally heard and seen it in everything massage therapy physical therapy chiropractic medicine osteopathy psychology when we make unsubstantiated claims the potential negative consequences of those with result to the therapist client or therapist patient interaction can be significant and so that's what we have to be mindful of if we're using terminology like this might make you feel more comfortable you know this might create a reduction in pain it may not there there is this to prove it there isn't and being honest with the person or persons that we're treating, I think that's more valuable than saying definitively, this does this, and as a result, you're going to see this. Because like I said, I don't know that. At the beginning of my career, I certainly thought that I knew that, but as soon as my ego got out of the way and I understood that I actually don't really know any of what I'm saying towards patients, I can't definitively say that, then I stopped using that language and said, you know, some of this suggests that this might be one of the reasons why, but as long as my patients continue to have positive benefits, I'm okay with not knowing. So that wraps up episode 26 of the Concast. As always, folks, I hope you found this valuable. Let me know in the comments reasons why you think uh, Reiki may work or not work, and what are your thoughts on the therapeutic intervention as well, do you think it has a utility in the therapeutic space? I'd love to know. Have yourself a great weekend, folks, and we'll see you in the next one.